This is Mission.org. I've always really perceived the world as boundaryless. There's nothing that's stopping you from poking and opening up doors. That kind of creates that hunger for, I want to find out more, and that question of why. I really think that the greatest innovators on the planet are that way. They're relentless about asking why and getting to root cause and understanding people's motivations. And that's a big part of marketing as well. If marketers lifted the boundaries of their imaginations, how much more impactful could their work be? Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Jeremy Bergeron. Today, we're joined by Sar Schwartz, the chief marketing officer for the multi-billion dollar IT solutions business, BMC Software. Sar, who's been at BMC for over two decades, believes that perpetual curiosity and an openness to possibility are critical for marketing success. Tune in to hear how his childhood in Israel, his time with the Israeli army, and his love for motorcycles have all contributed to his boundaryless approach to marketing. Now let's get into it. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. I just want to start at the beginning for you. Where did life start for you? Where are you from? And just kind of give us the early, early days of Sar Schwartz and kind of where you, yeah, where you came from. Yeah. So for me, growing up in Israel in the 70s, um, I think I'm aging myself just by saying that, uh, Israel was a very open place, uh, almost, almost like a place with no boundaries, where um, at least as a kid, I felt very safe. And if you look at today's world where uh, we try to keep tabs about everything our kids are doing, that wasn't really the case. We would basically run around, come back at night, or maybe not come back at all. And I think that um, that really at, that atmosphere kind of gave me a sense of everything is possible. Even as a kid, I felt that nobody was telling me what I shouldn't do. Nobody was boxing me. And obviously, that can also get you in trouble in life later on. But um, I kind of felt like there were no limits to what I could do or where I could go. And I carried that mantra throughout life, and it always kept me curious about, okay, what other door can I knock on or, or open? And so that, that was kind of my childhood. Um, otherwise, I wasn't a very popular kid. I was more of a nerd. And um, I also wasn't very athletic. I wasn't you know, into sports. And I, I didn't feel like I could do anything from a sense of uh, creating with my own hands or, or accomplishing anything that way. I couldn't draw. I couldn't sing. None of that stuff was, was open to me, even though I tried. And so when I got my first computer at 13, that was an incredible thing because all of a sudden, just by using language, I could create stuff. And, and one of my first memories from that time was being on the computer and I got this little booklet with computer games because I was a kid. That's what I wanted to do at the time. And I would sit down, I would copy the code onto the machine. It would take me about two or three hours and I would start playing the game. And that, again, you know, about a couple of hours later, that thing would get so hot on my lap, I couldn't even hold it. And I would turn it off. And everything went up in the air because there were no storage devices to personal computers back then. So the next day, if you wanted to play again, you would have to follow the same process. And that was my introduction to computers, but it was also the first time I could create something. 
And even though it was a baseline of, uh, of code that I copied off a booklet, over time I started changing the game. I started looking at the code and wondering, okay, what does that really mean? And I would change certain things, whether it's colors or characters on the screen, and I would see how you know, my creation would change. And I, that probably was the most transformative experience that I had as, as kind of a kid or an early teen. And it built my confidence because based on everybody else that was athletic or maybe smarter than I was, this was something I had and not a lot of kids were doing at the time. And I felt like that was my superpower. So that was my introduction into computers and that kind of evolved into high school. And ultimately, uh, when I uh, graduated high school and trying to figure out what to do, I kind of put computers aside and I went into aeronautical and space engineering. It was a program uh, where the Israeli army, which almost everybody goes to, allows you to go to school, go to college before you enlist. Um, you had to sign uh, three extra years in service to do that. Uh, but that was something that I wanted to do. And my mom was an airline employee and I had a friend who was interested in aeronautical engineering. And so I went to a faculty of aeronautical and space engineering. And that was completely not for me. So oh, that, wow. was, that was a time where I, it was just not very interesting. It was very hard, the physics, the math. I, I did okay, but that I just didn't make me feel good. So about two years later, I basically quit the program. I joined the Israeli Defense Forces, and then I went on a, a six-month boot camp for computer science as part of my uh, early passion in life for computers. Graduate with honors, and uh, then because I had some background in aeronautical engineering and I had some background in coding, I joined a unit in the Israeli Air Force that writes code for combat airplanes. And at the time, what would happen, Israel is obviously a country that's always in conflict. And so we always needed the best weaponry and the best way to defend ourselves. And so we would take these planes, they would come out of the uh, U.S. and we would modify them to fit the needs of the Israeli Air Force, whether it's adding new weapon systems, whether it's uh, modifying them so that we can fly on the radar or doing everything that we needed to do uh, to make them better for the pilots. And so my military service was a lot of fun. I was sitting in a, this huge um, simulator, a flight simulator, and you would write the code, you would run it on the computers, you would see if the code was any good. A lot of testing, because obviously when your code goes up in the air, if you mess it up, a plane can drop off the sky. Mm -hmm. and, and that was six years of my life, which uh, also gave me the opportunity to go and uh, become an officer. So I uh, got officers training and leading software teams as a result. And when I got out of the Air Force, I had the option to continue, but the Air Force was too big of a system for me to feel that I can thrive in. It was the uh, kind of the late 90s where um, everywhere across the world, the dot-com bubble was building up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody was hiring software engineers. And so two weeks, uh, I had three interviews every day for positions in, in various companies. Wow. And after two weeks, I basically called the recruiter and said, look, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm exhausted. I need to pick something. And I chose, I chose the company that I felt most comfortable with. It was a small company called New Dimension Software, uh, basically working on automation software, which uh, kind of in layman terms for people that are not from the space, uh, when you are working with computers or your phone, you're working interactively, meaning you're pushing buttons or you're putting in data. Uh, there's a lot of processing happening behind the scenes once you interacted with the interface. Um, it means putting things into databases, cleaning databases up, sending data to other applications, and, and that was really what we've done. And that was fascinating. I was there as a software engineer. And a couple of years later, I advanced pretty quickly. I was running R&D centers and um, the, the cycle of developing software is vicious and it's, it's hard. And two and a half years after, I got to a point where I said, I have to make a change. I have to do something else. Wow. And at that point, uh, we also got acquired by a company called BMC Software, the company I work for today. Okay. That journey continued with BMC where as an engineer, I really started becoming curious about why people pay so much money for our software. So when you write the code, you pretty much build a machine. But if you're not driving the car, 
if you're not there with the people that use the car on a daily basis, you really have no understanding or not, not a good enough understanding on how to build a better machine. And I really started taking interest in the business side of things, meaning, okay, why do people buy this? And what do they do with this? And why do they pay so much money for it? And that was kind of my bridge into marketing. Okay, this is awesome. So normally, Israeli military is two, two years. Three years for men and okay. two years for, uh, for women. Okay. And then you sign up for an additional three. Additional three okay, years. So, okay, got that it. That was the course I was on. Okay, got it. Um, what language were you learning back then? Like coding? What were some? This what were the early days? Like was this like Java or early days? No, that was pre-Java. Oh, okay. So we're to- talking um, PL one. Okay. Which I don't think is a language yeah, that anybody that even recognizes okay. anymore. Okay. I think some people would recognize C. C. Yeah. As a language, which ultimately morphed into C plus plus. Okay. Uh, Pascal, Fortran, even Algol was okay. was an early language. The early days of AI. So. So were, were your parents entrepreneurial or in business and tech? No, my parents had no connection to tech. In the 70s in Israel, and I think in most places, there were not a lot of tech jobs okay. running around. So my dad was, uh, he owned a business for diamond polishing. Interesting. So he would take raw diamonds and make wow. them what, what we know as diamonds are That's today. Interesting. So I okay. was, we were not rich or anything, but I remember uh, you know, my dad carrying a lot of diamonds on him. So okay. that was, that was okay. kind of interesting. And my mom, uh, she worked for the Israeli airline, uh, the national airline. She was there for 30 years. Uh, She retired from there. And and I think with her, I kind of learned what it was like to be loyal to a workplace. Mm. Um, When I started in tech, and the tech industry in general is very, um, I'd say, jittery. Um, It changes very frequently. You're you're used to seeing people work in a place for a year or two and then just move on. Very common, yeah. And for me, and the reason also I stayed for BMC for as long as I, as I did, and also it was also good to me, but uh, it gave me a sense of you have to stick through the good and the bad, and you have to see things through. And uh, longevity also means experience, and it means having the history and knowing what worked and what didn't work and trying to make things better. And that I kind of picked that up from her. Uh, she was my role model for finding a place, finding a home and a, and a career, not just a job. So. Wow. Yeah, because you, you said it well. I mean, you, you enter into the tech world and especially you coming up through the 90s when, you know, there was so much opportunity and money and opportunity everywhere, you know, and even fast forward to today, like you said, you can go lots of different places. You can carve your path. It's a very I, shiny I object mean, industry. For sure. You know, and then you staying somewhere over, you know, what is the total now at BMC? I'm 25 years at BMC. The okay. company exists 40 years. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly a lot, I mean, it's so many, you know, opportunities probably for you along the past, you know, 20 plus years where you could have done so many different things exactly. yet you, that you, yet you decided to play this, this clear longevity card. And, and, and I want to caveat, I've done so many different things. I just, I've done them in one company, right? Uh, it's yeah. not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I've done 25 years ago, right? I've had different opportunities. And if you think about, people think about, oh, you're, you're in the same company for 25 years and they raise an eyebrow, but the reality is everything changed around BMC in those past 25 years. And we had to adapt uh, and also reinvent ourselves several times. So those were very interesting cycles, the cycles where a company reinvents itself and you're deciding, you're making a decision, a conscious choice to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, and you're also talking about, this is, this is a business that I think today it's over $2 billion a year in revenue. We're talking, you know, global global impact, you know, almost all of the Fortune 50, Global 50 are, are clients. I mean, it's a, this isn't a small, scrappy startup, you know, and so you've had this experience along the, in product and, and marketing and now leading marketing. And it seems like there's this through line of curiosity for you. And I've heard you talk about this, which it's, this is one thing that some, not all, but some marketing leaders will talk about curiosity being big for them. And I feel like it's been big for it you. It is for you, for um, me as well. well. What's the story there with that? And, and how has that served you? Well, kind of, again, going back to my childhood, what we talked about, the fact that um, I've always really perceived the world as, as boundless. There, there's nothing that's stopping you from poking and opening up doors. Um, that kind of creates that hunger for, I, I want to I find out more, and that question of why. Why, why, always ask that childish, you know, the two-year-old always asking why. Uh, I really think that the greatest innovators on the planet are, are that way. They're relentless about asking why and getting to root cause and understanding people's motivations. And that's a big part of marketing as well. 
And so for me, I, I always try to understand um, probably more, more layers down than most people do. And that, that feeds me and that kind of builds, builds me up as a person. And, and I think it's key and fundamental to marketing. I will say one more thing about BMC that was a draw for me and, and kind of stayed constant throughout the years, no matter you know, what transformation the company was going through, is the fact that our systems and our software is so critical to so many organizations. Uh, almost every major brand out there is using a piece of our software. And when that happens and you knock on a door and they would welcome you and they would have a conversation with you. And so having the opportunity of almost being in every major city across the planet, knocking on a door, they would, there would be a BMC customer there. Having that conversation, understanding their business, understanding their struggles, and, and really kind of understanding how the major brands in the world operate is a privilege I think startups don't get to have. And that was fantastic for me. It's still fantastic and something that I cherish and, and benefit from to this day. When did you start to kind of get your eyes set on CMO? Like, when did that become like, okay, because you, you have all this interesting, diverse experience, you've got the, the developer programming mind. Now you're also got this creative side of you, which I believe to be a good modern day marketing leader, you have to be good at those things. And there's been a handful of marketing leaders that like you have the developer background and they also understand that creative component. Um, so for you, just along the way, it seems like storytelling became really important for you. But I want to know just when you set your, when did the CMO, like, did that, did that kind of show up as like, wow, that's next? Or did you already decide, okay, look, I, I see a path. That's what I, I want to lead marketing for an organization of this size and scale. When did that, when did that occur for you? Never. Okay. <laughs> would be my answer. So I, okay. I never intended to go down that route. And, and what I mean by that, the way I look at my career and, and what I always wanted to do was apply my skills towards really difficult problems that I could have an advantage in solving. And um, as I was progressing, I, I really just looked at what else is out there and, and considered it as a next step, not necessarily as a destination. I never, I never drew, uh, I had a page saying, and, and, and I, I hear the questions in interviews sometimes, which I think is a stupid question, where, where do you see yourself in five years? I, I could never answer that question, good, bad, or indifferent. And for me, it was always, I was in a situation, I was doing a certain role, I've been in that role for a while, what's the logical next step coupled with what's available, right? And ultimately, after doing several roles in marketing, I had the choice of uh, going back and leading a product marketing and a product management organization, or in other words, product strategy, or um, taking the chief marketing officer role at BMC, which was really kind of thinking about the BMC entity more so than, than an individual product. Think about the image of the brand and how we build it up. Think about the overall demand machine. Think about the communication aspect of the company. And that was, at the time, a much more bigger problem to solve, which I felt like I could apply my skills it was never about the ego for me. It was never about looking for the bigger job. It was really, you know, okay, what do I know? What have I done? What's interesting for me? And how could I apply my skills toward a big problem to solve? Yeah, because I mean, again, like you, you think about impact, you know, and then you, you have that. It's like, you know, I, one, of my, one of my good friends is a, a former Navy SEAL, talks about just kind of how he views the world and, you know, all of these great of achievements he's just kind of like for him it's just like it's just on a monday just a tuesday you know and i kind of see an energy with you just like you have such perspective and experience at the helm of just a massive organization and i'll use the word impact that you just uh outlined i, I think people like me agonize over that word because we certainly know that we have authority but i think that between authority and impact impact is the ultimate goal right and and impact could be good or bad we, we certainly want the impact to be in the direction of the of the business results and and i think that people in leadership positions like myself we always always look at the glass half empty and what we could have done more not so much necessarily what was accomplished we don't celebrate our successes all that much but we look at, okay, there's still a gap that we need to close. We're not moving fast enough. How can we get there? And so I think that the equation between authority and impact, how do you take your authority and create that positive impact? And then that dilemma of 
I'm never going to achieve everything I want to achieve. How can I be happy with that? Mm. You got, I think you got called in to help them with the rebrand, right? You were already there, but there was rebranding. Was it 2014? Rebrand was 2014. Okay. That's right. I, I was holding a key role in marketing. The, the chief marketing officer that, that we brought from the outside, uh, his name was Nick Otten, fantastic marketeer, came from B2C. Um, he had some ideas, but he needed someone on his side that knew BMC, knew how to navigate the machine, understood the business, understood the products, was more of a technologist. And him and I worked really well together, uh, taking that, uh, what I would take more the uh, out of the possible from the creative side and, and couple it with what BMC actually did in market and all of our capabilities and the products. And that created good synergy. It allowed us to rebrand in almost record time. I think we did in under six months. And Wow. Doing all that while you have all the stakeholders, we were under private equity at the time, so getting their consent, finding the funding for it, and doing everything we needed to do was a very cramped period. We almost couldn't afford to miss any steps. We couldn't, couldn't afford to have any, any stoppage, and, and somebody says, no, this is not good enough, go back and redo it. That would have killed the timeline. Wow. From my perspective, it seems like you have also had a lot of experience working with a lot of executive leaders. I mean, before the company was private, you think it was it went through a privatization at some in, point in during, 2014. In 2014, yeah. so so you, you've had this opportunity to now work with lots of different leaders. You know, in the course of again over 20 years, you know, you're seeing lots of things. But what is the you know the piece for you around how you're kind of reaching across the aisle and building trust and rapport with these stakeholders? I think today it becomes really important. But over the evolution of your career, what are some of the lessons you've learned, and like how do you protect and support the CEO in your role? And how do you build trust and rapport with the CFO or the, or, or someone else that's in a different line of business? Because that to me is where a lot of the magic really happens for a marketing leader um, to be able to reach across the aisle and do it well. Um, what are some of the lessons you learned or some examples you have around that? Well, the, the big one, and, and I have to say, I think this what you just outlined is an ongoing challenge for every chief marketing officer. Uh, marketing is a services organization. We provide services to the organization ultimately getting to our customers, but connecting the dots between so many different functions, uh, sales, product, customer success, the office of the CEO, the chief financial officer. We work a lot with the legal team. Uh, as you know, there's, you know, trademark uh, is, is a big uh, piece of what we look at from, from a sense of uh, going to market with materials. So we have to kind of bring everybody together. And I think that the one thing that you have to understand is that you have to be multilingual. And what I mean by that is every single function has its own language and priorities. And if you just go out there and uh, try to educate them about marketing, that's not going to work. You have to speak their language. So one of the things we try to do with a CFO is to understand, have them understand that the investment in marketing is actually yielding return that is tangible. Uh, we focus on that. We don't, we don't talk about ad impressions with a CFO because he's not really going to care about that. Uh, with a CEO, it's really more uh, understanding his vision and aligning to um, activities and outcomes that match uh, how we want to promote the portfolio, um, what's next for the company in general, uh, taking feedback on what he's hearing from customers and so, so, so on and so forth. And on the sales side, it's really mostly numbers. Um, our um, demand generation function is working like a sales team. So they are working with a sales team like a sales team. They're numbers oriented. They have a pipeline. They have, they're measured by numbers. They're getting compensated by numbers. So everything aligns there. That said, because organizations are functional, it's never perfect. It will never be 100%. But I think if there's one thing I take pride in, uh, ever since starting this position, joining BMC, is the fact that the friction is down to the absolute minimum necessary to function together as an organization where... I remember times where there was complete disconnect. Functions were not talking to one another. Marketing would do its thing, sales would do its thing, product would do its thing, and everybody, you know, when we were asked, we were all coming coming in with our own KPIs and our own dashboards, and that's never a healthy way to operate. So, hmm. yeah, because you got to me. I mean, of course, the age-old you know question of just how do you align sales and marketing today? There's a lot of technology and data that supports it, but I think at the top be able to plan together strategically, listen to each other, trust each other, work cohesively versus being in these two silos, especially in a large organizations. Like you really gotta, you know, you gotta connect those dots together. 
And the one thing that we're all grappling with, especially the size of BMC, but, but BMC is really not the largest organization you're going to meet. There are a lot larger organizations is alignment takes time. You have to sit in each other's meetings. You have to be present. Every function has got its own rhythm. So I think every company has to be really careful that they don't spend too much time talking to one another and not enough talking to customers, right? Because corporate life can be consumed by meetings all day long. You, you, you could, if you wanted to, you could block your calendar and just talk to one another. And then a year later, the market escaped from underneath your feet. <laughs> Everything changed, trends are different, and you're not able to serve your customers the way you need to, so. Well, how did you kind of manage the last couple of years? You know, obviously the world changed drastically and just, do you feel like the rebrand and the things you did, you know, four or five years ago or more really positioned you well for the last couple of years? Or was it like a lot of brands kind of having to think about, okay, the world's changing. We got to shift our perspective. Customers, their expectations are higher. They want to be, we're connecting with them differently. Like what was kind of your approach going into this, you know, pandemic world, now post-pandemic world, what was kind of the state of things there and what was your approach? Yeah, so getting into the pandemic, we were anchoring on something called run and reinvent. And that's really the position that we're taking on digital transformation, which means every company now has to accelerate the reinvention of their business through digital models, through digital technologies, while they're serving their customers. So you can't tell your customers, you know what, Bank of America, you can't pull money out of an ATM for a month because we are working on renovating our ATM systems or we're connecting it to the app. That's not going to work. Uh, you have to be able to run your business while you're reinventing it. And what happened during the pandemic, and we didn't really know up front what was going to happen. We were, like many other companies, trying to figure things out, is every company out there realized that they were low on serving their customers through technology, every single company, even the ones that were. And uh, in a world, in a touchless world, where you can't have somebody come to a branch or come to a store or, or even combine any type of physical interaction with your customers or employees or partners, you need technology. You need best-in-class ways to do that. And, and BMC was, was really a beneficiary of the acceleration of that cycle of running and reinventing. What we also did was we came up with um, a kind of a technology framework called the Autonomous Digital Enterprise. And that's, uh, again, the, the, the uh, pandemic inspired that, but it wasn't really something that was tied to the pandemic. And what the Autonomous Digital Enterprise is, it's, it's a way, it's a framework to allow companies to move faster, serve their customers faster, serve their employees faster through digital technologies with some very simple principles. And so that was also something that caught on uh, because everybody was paying attention. So I think that for technology companies, not just BMC, that was the case in general. It wasn't just us. Everybody heard about Zoom blowing up, mm -hmm. uh, which by the way, I'm hearing that uh, now that uh, people are coming back into personal interactions, that's obviously they're trying to kind of get off Zoom or get uh, unaddicted to it. Um, but, but in general, it wasn't just BMC, it was everybody, but I felt like we were very well positioned to, uh, to benefit from the trend. So. And it seems like, you know, this idea of running while, you know, re run and reinvent, it's like you're saying you're building this almost new jet engine in mid-flight, a little easier when you're a startup and a, and a smaller team able to maybe pivot. And again, you're talking about a big organization. So the idea seems great, but it also seems like you're now, there's a lot of infrastructure there and a lot of, you know, a lot of varying degrees and levels of, of responsibility. And now we have to, oh, well, now we got to run fast, be prepared to reinvent and move quickly and actually do it, not just talk about it. Exactly. And now if you're a company, if you've been around for more than five or 10 years, the, the way you should think about the technology stack of companies, um, especially the more mature ones, is think about walking into a Best Buy and seeing a Walkman connected to a CD player, connected to an iPod, connected to the cloud, right? That's kind of what you see. And a lot of companies don't have the luxury just to move everything to the cloud right away or um, toss everything out the window and start from scratch. And so you have to make everything work. And that's really what Run and Reinvent's all about. How do you make everything work together in a way that to your customer would seem like you are moving as fast as the new startup, as the new shiny object? Because 
nobody's getting any discounts for being a more mature brand. Everybody is expected to do as well as the shiny object in market today. Hmm. Now, as you're you know, at the helm of marketing for BMC, you have leaders that you brought on and that report to you and that, you know, you're cultivating this container for a team below you. Um, obviously, you probably can't get as, you know, in the weeds as maybe as you used to. Maybe you do. You said you like to go a little layer, layers deep. But just in terms of how you like to find high-performing talent, retain high-performing talent, like what is your process in thinking about the generals, your leaders on your team? We've connected with, with some of them actually uh, who clearly some brilliant leaders there, but just your approach in like, yeah, supporting your leaders and kind of how do you, how do you, yeah, how do you go down that road? That's a good question. I just want to correct one thing you said. My leaders are not below me. We sit at one table. Mm. That's really the mentality. Yep. And that, that's also the way I treat every single function. They've got uh, really big buckets of responsibility. So my marketing organization is a little bit more tight than you would normally see. Uh, we've got one big bucket for communications, internal, external, analyst relations, public relations, and um, also messaging. We've got uh, the branding team, which is creative services, the web. We've got events there. We've got our video studio. We've got additional marketing reporting up to that. And then we've got the man generation, and also including uh, field marketing. And so each and every one of those leaders, they're managing their own pods, but they also have to work together. And there are very high standards. There's obviously a cadence of what we have to accomplish together as a team, but their functions are really complex. And uh, they're required to go and hire the best and trust them. And that's really a BMC mantra, hire the best mm. and trust them. I think Steve Jobs once said, why are we hiring smart people just to tell them what to do? That's, it, it, you're, gonna, you're gonna find out pretty quickly if you've got someone that is struggling um, then you can try to help them out, really understand what, what the basis of the struggle is. Is it a capacity issue? Is it a motivation issue? Um, and talent in general right now is, is really hard, not just in marketing, but across the board. I'm sure you, you're well aware of mm -hmm. the fact that uh, there's, there's a big uh, fight over uh, talent for tech, and we're, we're in the same position. So part of what we do is work with the recruitment team to... Mm make sure that recruits understand uh, BMC. We're not as big of a brand as Microsoft or Facebook. So how do we um, work on uh, unique differentiators for the company that uh, would be appealing to, to a lot of folks? We do a lot around diversity and inclusion, um, spend a lot of time and thinking on how to make that better. Um, so, so again, so, so many different things come into that, but ultimately, we're not micromanagers. We have high expectations. We know what we need to accomplish and we measure people on outcomes, not activities. That's another thing that if you're gonna sit in one of my staff meetings and somebody says, oh, we've done this event and we've launched this website or you know, we did this campaign, my question would be, so what? What, what do we have to show for it? What, how do we translate mm. that to real outcomes that we can measure? And that's really all that matters. Wow, great, okay. It's been, you know, known that you have a love you know for, motor, for motorcycles and and i also think that it's super interesting that you have a motorcycle inside of your house which is amazing where did the love of motorcycles start for you and it seems like it's still carried through till even today you still ride you're still passionate about it is there some connection to, to being a motorcycle enthusiast and being a marketing leader for you is or is it this is the thing where i disconnect from that world and it's just me and i'm riding what's the is there any connection to those two yeah so um my love for motorcycles goes back to my teens. Okay. And I think earlier I mentioned that my childhood was uh, boundless. And um, in Israel, you couldn't really get a license for a car until you're 17 and a half, but you could get a license for a motorcycle when you were 16. And so <laughs> um, where I would, as, as maybe a child or a teenager, could walk around my neighborhood uh, and that, that had, had physical boundaries of how far I could walk. Motorcycle really opened it up, and then I could just go anywhere, get all the way to the border of my country. Not, not a big country, but it allowed me to explore even more. And that really it gave me freedom that was just incredible at 16. And I was on that motorcycle every single day. And obviously, when I got my license for a car and, you know, got into the military, uh, life happens. You meet your, your significant other. You have kids. 
And uh, I, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. For, for years and decades, I forgot about it. And uh, coming to the States and being a dad here and having a little bit more disposable time, I kind of started looking for something. And in, in the back of my head, it started kind of creeping back into my consciousness. And 2016, I, I got back into it and I never looked back. Um, I, I have, often people tell me, you've got a very dangerous hobby. And my response is, I would quit if it was a hobby, but it's really not. It's a passion, and you can't really quit on your passion. It kind of became a little bit um, who I am. I, um, I not only ride, I, I enjoy the process of uh, working on the mechanical process of working on motorcycles. I lead rides when I get a chance. Um, I'm at a point in my life where I don't have a lot of time, so I do it on the weekends. Uh, but I'm about to go up to Wyoming for a week on the uh, July 4th holiday. So that would be a complete exploration. Never been there with a group of six riders mm. that are from this area. So that, that would be interesting. And outside the fact that I just, it, it kind of brings me back to my childhood and that sense of endless freedom. Uh, what I found when I got into it the second time is more, uh, it's, it's a field called adventure riding. And adventure riding requires certain types of motorcycles that can really go anywhere. So they can get off the beaten path, they can go off-road, they can get into places where even cars don't get to go. And so the aspect of being able to experience the world and get into places where nobody else goes, again, for my, uh, I guess, adventurous uh, spirit, is, is priceless. And so I do a lot of that right now. So that was another aspect. And, and again, I think it, it kind of fits my curiosity. We talked about curiosity mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. So that kind of feeds my curiosity, being able to do that. And, uh, and also, there, there's something about motorcycles that is, is a bit unique. And, and kind of Steve Jobs talked about it, when I, I think, when he talked about uh, design thinking and the fact that um, they also worry about how the iPhone looks on the inside, not just the outside, right? Everything has to be pretty on the inside, even though nobody sees the inside. Motorcycles are that way, too. The engine and the gearing and all the components have to be attractive. They have to look good for somebody to want to buy that motorcycle. It's not just about how the motorcycle rides. It's, it's about form and function. So designers of motorcycles have to be also engineers. And engineers have to be designers. And I kind of feel like I'm the same way. I'm, I'm an engineer that's got the creative muscle. And so it kind of fits my personality and my skill set as well. Because nobody's going to buy an ugly motorcycle. And nobody's going to buy a pretty motorcycle if it can't do the things a motorcycle needs to do. So all those things combined, I think, are uh, just kind of bringing it all together for me. You mentioned Steve Jobs a couple times. And so is he, is he a leader that you started to follow or kind of get inspiration from? Are there others like him or what's about Steve Jobs? He, he's, he's definitely interesting from yeah. a sense of uh, challenging the status quo, mm -hmm. really creating the world that we know today from a technology standpoint. Um, you, you can always ask the question, what would have happened if he didn't do it? I think eventually somebody else would. Uh, it's just his unique approach. And some of the things he left behind are, are uh, I think, a beacon to leadership and a beacon to how you should be thinking and, and do things right. Mm. Uh, Elon Musk is, is another one of those individuals uh, that I look up to. And uh, people think about him as a Tesla guy, but he's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. SpaceX and, um, and everything else he was able to accomplish early days as well so you, you look at these folks and really try to understand what makes them who they are and and you take what you can take from it because you really can't and you don't want to be exactly like that person mm. but there are certain things you can adopt and uh, and make you a better leader make you a better person right what's your approach to just planning for the for the next year you know because i imagine that you know you're wrapping up your you know the, the whatever year it is you're now thinking about a strategic plan for the next 12 months now you have leaders at the table, like you said, supporting this. I'm just imagining like what what's what your what action you're taking as you start to think. Like, do you kind of, you know, put yourself in a room with a whiteboard and think, okay, I've got the next I know what we did the last 12 months. I see where we're going. This is where high level, I'd like to start taking things as a leader. Of course, you're bringing this maybe to the team and discussing it. Do you start planning and thinking about the the future on your own, thinking about you know, your relationship with growth and the velocity of growth and how fast you can get there. Do you, you know, let the team do their thing and you join them? Like, what's your process for, you know, evaluating the success of the one year? Of course, an industry that changes all the time, looking at the next 12 months, 
like how do you like to yeah be creative before you you know start planning with the team if there is a difference there a separation there yeah that's a good question and, and there were a lot of uh, components in it so i'll start with how, how do i know so we have metrics and kpis that are outcome driven right not not activity driven but uh, for instance on the demand side we'd like to know how much uh, contribution to what we call closed one or actual business did the marketing team uh, contribute to so you want to see that grow over time um, on the event side again you really want to measure engagement and and really understand who's coming to your events and and what were the tangible and intangible outcomes of the interaction within events and so there's a pretty easy way for us to measure success and ultimately for for bmc in general but almost every company they really want to focus on growth and so growth is really the ultimate uh, measure so pivoting into what we call new logos, focusing the marketing organization on bringing in new business, not so much expanding existing relationships or expanding existing customers, but new logos is a big part of how we measure success across the organization. Uh, to the question on planning, uh, we are transforming the process right now within my own group because it used to be very siloed and functional, meaning every function had its own activities and, and funding. And I think a lot of companies are that way. They have budget for the function and the function can ask for more budget for itself if it can bring a business case to show that it contributes to the bottom line more so than other functions. So it kind of becomes a competition within functions. And I think that for, for the marketing organization, that approach actually hurts us. It's not helping us. And, and, and in general, I think it's, it's a bit of an outdated approach. The approach I want to take with the team is uh, to sign up for what we want to do collectively and rather than having a um, budget per function, we're going to have a budget per activity. Mm. And the functions are going to share that budget. And so that would lead to a conversation about what are the big rocks we want to sign up for as a team and have people stop thinking about how do I get more money from my function? How do I hire more people? How do I expand my own little kingdom? And, and more, uh, let's, let's think about the big rocks that are going to be beneficial for BMC and let's sign up for that. Let's assign budget to those activities or those big rocks or outcomes that we want. And then we can carve that budget up to the mix of communication, branding, and mm. demand generation. Right. Mm. So that's, and I think it's going to drive more collaboration, which right now is more, I would say, encouraged than organically happening. Mm. Do you feel like, the chemistry amongst the leadership team, like what, what, how important is the chemistry of, of, of the ELT in an organization like BMC? Again, big organization, a lot of scale. You know, you've got all these functions responsible for you know, a lot of the bottom line. You're all helping and supporting. But I mean, how important is it for that, chem, that, that connection? Again, it's across critical. the aisle. It's yeah. absolutely critical. And I think that in the past two and a half years, uh, we've got uh, the CEO that joined two and a half years ago. He's done a phenomenal job in bringing the company together. Part of uh, the, the early days of the company was very much bifurcated by business units, and, and that was kind of the, the important unit of the company. And we've started on a journey called One BMC when, when Iman joined, and it's been, um, it's been incredible to see that come together. And it also um, created an environment where working together was a lot more advantageous than not working together mm. and it removed some of that friction of fighting over resources or budget or prioritization when the ceo sets a strategy and says this is what we're doing and if we don't do it together we don't do it at all from that perspective i can tell you it's in the best place it's ever been and and not even to say it that way but it, i think it's in in a much better place than i've seen in other companies that i was exposed to so mm. that's great which, which by the way could, could also lead to groupthink but sure um but from my perspective, there's a lot more positive than negative to that. Let's talk about this, you know, this cookie-less future that we're, that's coming. And a lot of brands are, yeah, really at the table talking about this now. Um, it's really interesting to see how, what certain brands are doing and how they're responding to this. But what's your perspective on where we're heading? You know, because you see marketing, it's always changing. But now there's this really interesting intersection where now cookies going away and first-party data being really important. So we'll love your thoughts on that. I think there's a history there that most people don't realize. Marketing is a really very traditional trait and profession. And what we're seeing right now is disruption and in an industry that's just not ready to be disrupted, right? And 
the writing was on the wall for years now, whether you look at GDPR, uh, privacy complaints, uh, where social media has evolved into. Uh, so the industry has seen this coming, but everybody complaining about it right now, they should really kind of look at themselves and, and say, you know what, we've, we've not been ready for this, right? So that's, at least that's my perspective on that. Now, where I believe it's heading, uh, I, I don't believe that the privacy headwinds are going to stop. I think, it, if anything, it's going to get uh, even more tight. And I think marketeers and, and definitely the digital marketing industry, which is um, has evolved so uh, so much with with technology, uh, it needs to think about a different way to distribute the revenue. What I mean by that, and, and I don't know if you've seen the, the the Netflix documentary. I think it was a documentary, social media. Mm -hmm. If if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. Mm -hmm. And um, if I am going to share information about myself voluntarily so that I could be sold to in a much more pinpointed way, I want to be sharing the profits of this industry, right? It'll be much more interesting for me to participate if I am benefiting. Right now, if somebody, if you've seen an ad and, you're, and you, you buy something that was in that ad, you're not making any money, you're not benefiting from that situation, you are a bystander. And I think that ultimately down the road, and it'll take, I think, five, 10 years to come up with, with some models. Interestingly, my mom in Israel is uh, paying less for her cable service so that she can be tracked for channel preferences and, and program preferences. That's interesting. Okay. So she's getting a discount. She's retired. And for her, there's a benefit because she doesn't have income right now and she can enjoy all the programs at a discount. And so I think something like that would need to start being more common for all of us uh, to want to do that. And some of us would never want to do that. We would say our privacy is too important. We, we just don't want to partake and we'll be exposed to generic ads. But I think that the industry is going to have to figure out a way to model profiting or, or sharing the profits with the subjects, which we all are at the moment, right? So in that line of thought too, just to, you know, we, we, we get a lot of really interesting B2B, large B2B brands that we're talking to. And I would love to get your perspective on just this, the humanization of brand of brands, especially in this B2B world where, you know, you you're, we see a lot of marketers taking a page from the B2C world and applying that to these large enterprise B2B companies. And, and now in this world where cookies are going away, and like we're having to, you have to really connect with the right message at the right time, which you talk a lot about. How, you know, how is BMC doing this and thinking about this just, humanizing humanizing the brand in this world that's rapidly changing where you're not able to connect or have as much data as you had before around the customers engaging with your brand what's the approach there on how you're yeah humanizing the brand i like that that's a good question uh, for us it's really looking at all of our content and how we serve it and so um there's there's actually a visual language that we use uh, if you go to our website right now you're going to see that um i hope you see that it's really inviting interaction and um, it's not going to look like um, a stuffy corporate website with this big header and, and these monotone colors and, and just, you know, generic text. Uh, so the visual language is really important for you to look at something and say, this is, this is kind of fun. I want to interact with it. And I, I kind of want to scroll down and see what these guys have to offer. The second thing we're tackling right now is the language. I think like, like many companies, we use uh, what I call marketing lingo, which is improve agility, reduce cost. And it's very generic and it's not, as you said, it's not human. That's not, not how people talk. And so uh, translating that to plain English is, is kind of a big task and um, something that we're embarking on right now. And the third element is connecting the dots for customers. So think about when you go to Amazon and you buy something, and, and this has nothing to do with privacy because you're, you're logged onto your portal, you're, you're giving them the information from your own free will, and they're tracking what you do on their website. And so when, when you start buying things, uh, ultimately over time, Amazon's gonna have context about you. They'll start uh, developing an opinion, an understanding of who you are, what you prefer, what you browse, what you buy, what you share with friends, right? All those things are being collected. And uh, we've got customers that do the same on our website, and we want to build the same type of context for them, not to share that information with anybody, but to be able to serve them content better so that I know if somebody's spending time on a capacity optimization page that 
they're probably going to be interested if the new version comes out and I'm going to, you know, pop that information up when they go on the web website and that's going to be different for them than anybody else looking at that website in a generic manner, right? So those are three things and, and you know, part of, I talked about the, the autonomous digital enterprise, uh, part of that is transcendent customer experience and so making your customers feel more comfortable engaging with you and and making an effort to really understand who they are in the context of what they give you uh, is really important, and that's going to be front stage and center for us um, in the weeks and months to come. Mm, okay. There were a couple of news articles. The first one was an article written uh, this month. It was in, uh, looks like Quartz. It says the title was May was the worst month for startup layoffs since the start of the pandemic. This, the author is writing about roughly 17,000 workers got laid off from 71 tech startups around the world in May. Uh, according to data, the tech layoff tracking site, um, the May layoff was a total of 350%. It was up 350 from from April. Um, central banks have begun raising interest rates, making it more expensive to borrow money to fund aggressive expansion. With tech startups going through a bit of a rough time right now, given your business experience, is there any perspective you can offer for people hoping to build a startup or for startups who may be struggling? Yes. So, so my perspective uh, for startups right now, and a lot of them are feeling the pain because it's, it's a panic move. And uh, startups that are, don't yet have a product and don't yet have profitability um, are going to face these types of difficulties anytime there's kind of a turnover in the economy, right? Which we're seeing right now. And my advice to anybody that is starting a company right now is to get to a point where they can show profitability quickly. If they've got ideas that are not going to materialize in the months and years to come, it's probably going to be really hard to, to get funding. If you're coming into the funding uh, raising round with some customers and some money coming in the door, you're going to be much better positioned to really recruit some more funding and to, um, to survive this period. I do also want to stress that my belief, and I've seen it, uh, over my experience over the years is that this is a bump in the road. And so um, the world is not going to stop relying on tech because there's a recession. Uh, the world is not going to stop uh, looking at unicorns because uh, we have higher interest rates. I think it's a distraction right now, and it's certainly a bump in the road. But when I look at the future of tech, I really don't see humanity being able to extract more resources out the ground or any other industry having more potential than the tech industry. So don't give up if you've got that idea, but you don't see profitability right away. Maybe timing is not right. Go get a job. There's plenty of uh, demand for tech employees for I'm sure the 17,000 people that got uh, laid off would be able to find hopefully jobs uh, quickly. And I think the future is rosy. Mm, I love that answer. Another article, the title is What Hugging Face and Microsoft's Collaboration Means for Applied AI written this month in the next web. The author writes, last week, Hugging Face announced a new product in collaboration with Microsoft called Hugging Face Endpoints on Azure, which allows users to set up and run thousands of machine learning models on their on Microsoft's cloud platform. Having started as a chatbot application, this thing called Hugging Face made its fame as a hub for transformer models. Uh, large tech companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft have been using these transformer models for several years. But the past couple of years has seen a growing interest in transformers among smaller companies, including many that don't have in-house machine learning. How do you think the growth of machine learning and, and AI more broadly will affect tech marketing in the future? Uh, so the, the whole topic of AI and machine learning, we're, I think we're at a bit of an inflection point. Uh, there, there are two types of, uh, I'll, I'll talk about AI first, two types of AI. One we call uh, kind of task-oriented AI which is, uh, for instance, teaching a computer to identify uh, pictures of cats out of you know, millions of pictures that you throw at it, right? Ultimately, algorithms and models can become really good at that, more so than humans can. Generic AI is really the holy grail where you can apply or you, you can serve computers with complex problems that require thinking, connecting the dots, and, and that space is really in its infancy. And when it comes to human interaction, generic AI is much more interesting than uh, what we call task-specific AI. Uh, although, again, bots today use pieces of machine learning and specific AI to communicate fairly well with people, including emails, by the way. 
So on that side, we have technologies today that allow marketeers and, and sellers to qualify leads with bots that basically have conversations like humans would. Uh, there are some very interesting breakthroughs uh, as of late on language and also imagery. I don't know if you heard about Dolly 2 or Dolly 3. Mm -mm. Uh, those are technologies that in, are not open to the public yet, thank God, where you can basically free text say, I would like to see or draw me a picture of Elon Musk riding a horse on Mars. And you would get within 10 seconds, about 10 or 20 images, very realistic, computer generated, high resolution that would blow you away. So those are things that are in experimentation phase. Um, ultimately, I think that we would be able to use AI and, and, and machine learning and natural language processing in, in I would say, very mundane uh, daily tasks of marketing. I think they would be able to automate some of the things that we do. I don't see in the foreseeable future in the next uh, three to five years um, a, a complete shakedown in the marketing paradigm or discipline uh, when we can actually tell a computer, go, uh, here's the product, uh, here's the target audience, go build marketing campaigns, and, um, and by the way, talk to the prospects and close the deals. I don't see that happening in the next uh, three to five years, but, but what's happening right now with uh, natural language is, uh, is pretty fascinating, and I don't rule it out for the future. I think that it's moving a lot faster than I anticipated early on, and, and there are some very interesting technologies out there, so definitely something to watch. What do you look at in terms of, you know, like data, you know, again, you're in charge of marketing, large organization, lots of goals, big portfolio. What data are you looking at? On, like, are you looking at data on a daily basis? Is it weekly? What are you kind of paying attention to at the helm of marketing for BMC? What do you like? Is it, do you wake up daily and look at, you're looking at certain data points daily? Is it kind of, you trust reports from your leaders? Like, where do you like to dive in and pay attention to things as the CMO? So the, the big uh, numerical things that we look at on a weekly basis, not so much on a daily basis, although it depends uh, on the quarter, is the, the pipeline okay. uh, for the various products. You, you really want to see, we, we've got targets, quarterly targets, weekly targets. So you want to see that uh, progress. You really want to understand where you have some weaknesses and, and try to close that. So th those are reports that I look at on a weekly basis. We've got daily things that I look at as far as the... Um, uh, exposure, the communication exposure. So anything that was reported about BMC or its competitors. Okay. We spent quite a bit of time looking at the competitive landscape as well to kind of understand what's happening in the marketplace. And and the third thing is as, as business leaders, we just look at the macro, right? So we, you know, we're reading daily business reports about what's going on, what's happening with the stock market, what's happening in the tech industry, just to kind of understand, you know, where we fit and, and how our own journey progresses. Mm. So no, there, there's not like one thing that we do. We, we, we look at various angles of everything and we try to assess. Uh, the other thing is if there's something that we need to react to, whether it's from a corporate social responsibility standpoint, whether it's from a technology standpoint, um, then uh, we are um, fully set to do that reactively. Um, and again, I think part of being a marketeer, definitely in this position of a chief marketing officer, you gotta be paranoid, you gotta watch everything, you gotta look at everything. Uh, there's always something that you might be missing that's relevant that you can capitalize on. So, mm. I wanted you just to think of the you know the past twenty plus years of your experience there, and if you could draw two two pieces. One is a favorite failure over the past twenty years. You know, just a, a something that maybe seemingly was like a really rough thing and turned out to be just a good lesson learned, or maybe it was just a failure and you you had to learn some things from that. And and just what's been your favorite win? Like what's been your, uh, just a big win over your, again, a career there at BMC where you really are excited about this thing that happened? Yeah, so good questions. I think my big failure was, uh, I would say two or three years into my job, um, right before BMC acquired New Dimension Software, I was running a big development organization and we were rushing to come up with a really transformational big release. And, um, there was so much work to do, so little time, that we completely neglected uh, to think about the customer from a sense of how are they going to install that thing. So it's not that we didn't have an install function, but it was uh, kind of more you buying a car and getting all the pieces in the mail with an IKEA type uh, instruction manual 
and now you have to go figure it out. And our products cost more, much more than a car. And so <laughs> having that blind side and, and, and really not so much just the blind side about the install process, but really getting more of that, uh, think about the customer. Think of always when you create something, think about how they're go going to experience it, not how you're experiencing it now, how, how you're creating it, right? So that was kind of a big eye-opening experience. Thank God I kept my job and I was able to uh, continue and progress. But that was uh, something that I think is still kind of a scar on my back that, that I would carry. Um, on the successes, um, it, it's not so much, I mean, we, we could talk about the rebranding of BMC, which was just a wonderful process, but for me, it's more personal. So every time I get a call from someone or a note from someone saying, hey, you helped me, or hey, I had a conversation with you and it really opened up my eyes and thank you. Um, even whether it's on a professional side or personal side, that fills me up, I think, for weeks or months. And so to me, leadership is, is, is a business of people and the fact that if I'm able to either inspire, help, uh, guide, uh, or even give people new ideas, that that is the best thing on the planet. And uh, I, I can't say that it happens every day, but it does happen enough for me to to feel very satisfied with this job and with this with this trade. So that's awesome. So lightning round. These are again lightning round questions. Just answer as quick as you can. Some fun ones here. Before we talk about lightning round, got to give a shout out to Salesforce, our partner for the show. Salesforce sponsors this show. For those who want to learn more, head over to salesforce.com forward slash marketing. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Okay, first question, lightning round, Sar Schwartz. Last time you tried something new. Gosh. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I did not argue with a gate agent. <laughs> and that get, got me upgraded. And I always argue with the gate agents on, on getting on flights. So, okay. so maybe we can, we can put that one down. And it was very hard not to argue with her. So Okay. What's a life lesson you learned the hard way? I think I'll, I'll, I'll go to my kids. You can't really make them do what you want them to do. They're their own people. They don't necessarily subscribe to your parenting style. And, and that's uh, every time I try to make my kids be more like me, it's, it's a big F. So. Okay. That's, that's super helpful for me, having, having four little ones at our house. Um, if you could choose one book as a mandatory read for high school students, is there a book that you would choose? Easy, Power of Moments. Who's the author of that one? There are two authors, I think. Okay. I don't recall it off the top of my head, but that's... Power of Moments. Power right. of Moments. Okay, I got it. Okay, this is a doozy, but you have to choose one of them. Would you rather lose all of your old memories or never be able to make new ones? All of my old memories. Easy. Okay, okay. Easy. If you had to build a marketing team from scratch, let's say tomorrow you show up, they're all gone. What's the first role you're hiring and why? Communications. Ah, comms. Okay. That's that's the first. That's the first that's someone the said first, that. That's the first because okay. that's, that's when you have to kind of, that, that's the, the one that's going to help you battle everything else. Interesting. And, and control the narrative until you actually have a marketing team. So. Wow, you're the first one that said that. That's great. If you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go? I'd stay right here. Oh, also the, fir also the first answer <laughs> for that one. All right. God knows what you're going to discover when you go. Okay. What is your favorite app on your phone right now? It's called Ynet. It's where I, I consume all my uh, Hebrew Israeli news. Okay. So I'm still connected to the motherland. Okay, got it. Um, what is the skill you believe everyone should have? Playing an instrument. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you could effortlessly pick up a new skill in an instant, what would it be? Multiple languages. So mm, that's a good one. Okay. German, French, Italian. Italian. Okay, last question. What's one thing you want to do this year that you've never done before? I'd love to go to Alaska. I just don't know how I'm going to do it this year, but right. I would love to go to Alaska. Make it a possibility. Yeah. Sar, this has been an exceptional conversation. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Just an honor to have you and good luck. Thank you. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, 
but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.